slept well. It's great to see you. Thank you for coming back. It's always an encouragement. <laughs> um, let's turn to Titus. Well, as we come to uh, God's word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning. Please help us now to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them. That by the comfort of your Holy Spirit, we, we may be inspired to hold fast to them and to the hope of everlasting life. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, Let's read again Titus chapter 1, and then we'll get stuck in. Um, Whatever that is, I'm reading from the ESV. (laughs) As I said last night, we'll muddle through somehow. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone's above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For... There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is the word of the Lord. Fantastic. Um, Towards the end of the 18th century, a Gloucestershire doctor, Edward Jenner, observed that milkmaids were uh, generally immune to smallpox. In fact, since the middle of the century, it had been common folklore that those who'd had cowpox, quite a mild disease, were protected against the more deadly smallpox. And Jenner wanted to test that hypothesis. A milkmaid, Sarah Nelms, had caught cowpox from a cow called Blossom. It's great, isn't it? Lovely little historical detail. And so on the 14th of May, 1796, Jenner took the eight-year-old son of his gardener, a boy called James Phipps, and infected him 
with some of the pus he had scraped from Sarah's cowpox. Six weeks later, you'd never get this through an ethics committee these days, would you? Six weeks later, on the 1st of July, he infected the boy with smallpox. And although he developed a fever, he did not contract the disease. Well, Jenna went on to repeat the experiment on 23 subjects, including, this is putting your money where your mouth is, his own 11-month-old son. And in 1798, the research was published to the Royal Society. So Jenna gave us the word, which we have sadly become very familiar with of late, the word vaccine from the Latin for cow, vacca. So we have Blossom to thank. Now, why do I tell you that? Well, because Christianity is infectious, or at least it ought to be. When the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ grips someone, when they grasp the truth of the grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ, and it begins to transform them and change them, it is immensely attractive. It draws others. It's infectious. And as Paul writes here to his apprentice Titus, he's concerned that these fledgling churches on Crete really catch the truth that they really contract, if you like, full-blown Christianity such that these churches are then the, the, the spiritual equivalent of a COVID hotspot. Paul longs that the churches on Crete should be highly contagious and infectious, powerfully infectious. Okay, so for a moment, just imagine you want to stop that. How might you prevent it? Imagine you were the devil for a moment. How might you stop the infection of Jesus spreading on the island? Well, here's one answer. In the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis has screw tape, the senior devil, giving the junior d- devil wormwood this advice. He said, a moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all, and all the more amusing. In other words, inoculation will halt the spread. Vaccination will prevent infection. So just like Jenna with cowpox, let let the people just get a, a little mild dose of Christianity. Not enough to actually catch the disease, but just enough to get the antibodies going so that they, they don't catch the disease at all. Let them, let them get a little dose of religiosity or a, a bit of morality. Or, or let them become uh, infected with an interest in church history or, or better still, some myths and legends like Jesus visiting Foy. I kid you not, some people genuinely believe that Jesus was brought to Cornwall by Joseph of Arimathea and is a teenager. Or or let them get a, a, a preoccupation for family trees and recreating genealogies. Let them catch a few do's and don'ts, especially don'ts. And let them enjoy debating and arguing, especially over trivial and divisive issues. All of those things are actually referred to in Paul's letter. And it doesn't matter which dose they catch, as long as it is superficial and it doesn't change the heart. If you want to put people off real Christianity, well then, inoculate them with a little dose of superficial Christianity. Just enough, for example of the shared life of a a lively church or or just enough of of the music of of true worship or just enough plausible spiritual words Paul talks later 110 about empty talkers just enough to vaccinate against the real thing and Titus's job on Crete the reason Paul's writing to him is if you like an anti-vax project, 
an anti-inoculation campaign. He wants to prevent superficial versions inoculating people against our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, as we saw last night, real Christianity makes a real difference in people's life because truth and godliness go together like Neeps and Tatties, Tom and Jerry, Ant and Deck, Wallace and Gromit, etc. In other words, God's trustworthy word cannot but transform lives. And it's trustworthy because, verse 2, God is not a liar. He's not a fibber. He doesn't tell porkies. He's not economical with the truth. He says what he means, and he means what he says. So this is not about opinions or speculations or a best guess, but truth that has been revealed from God, by God, through the apostles' message about Jesus. And it's out in the open. It's manifested. That's how the real infection takes hold. That's how the contagion spreads, as God's trustworthy word transforms lives. And that's why Titus's job on Crete is to appoint leaders for these new churches who will both teach the truth and live the truth. Leaders who will walk the talk. Leaders who have themselves been transformed by the truth that they teach. So look at verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. I was sent an article uh, a couple of weeks ago which suggested that uh, evangelicals in this country um, have focused too much on, on methods and tools and skills, particularly when it comes to training preachers, as if you can just hand people a toolkit and that's enough. Use the tools in the right way, get it right, get it across, and all's going to be well. It's just about the competency. Well, is it? Is it? I don't know how it was in the SEC, but newly ordained curates in the Church of England undertake what's called initial ministerial training. And over their course of their curacy, they're expected to complete a grid of 45 separate competencies. They've got to give evidence. They've got to prove that they're capable of becoming a vicar. They've got to provide the evidence in each one of those 45 uh, categories that they can do the job. But the question is, well, you may have the skills, but where's the truth and where's the godliness? I want to suggest that Paul's list here in Titus is much more searching than 45 competencies. It's also much briefer. In fact, he tells Titus to look for just two things. Did you notice that? Just two things. In verses 6 to 9, he spells them out. And the first thing is character. Character. Look at verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. And when we're thinking about someone's character, Paul suggests that the first place to look then is at their closest relationships. That there shouldn't be any cause for finger pointing. They're, they're to be above reproach. And that's underlined, isn't it, by the rep uh, repetition beginning and end of verse 6 and 7. In particular, they're to be the husband of one wife. Or, or more literally, they are to be a one-woman man. Which isn't meant to rule out those who are single. But it certainly rules out any sort of sexual indiscretion. The American president, Harry Truman, once said, a man not honorable in his marriage relationship is not usually honorable in any other. Um, certain prime ministers of late might have listened to that. And it is wise advice, isn't it? So despite our politicians protesting that their private life is private, if someone's prepared to play fast and loose with their closest relationship, what would be, they be prepared to do more generally? And the Apostle Paul would agree. It's a great test of character. 
And not just as a husband, you see, but also as a father, a man, verse 6, whose children are believers. A better translation might be who are faithful to him. That is, they respect him and stand by him, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. The point is not whether his children are cheeky, mine certainly are, but rather that over the long haul they respect their father. And again, that's a great test of character, isn't it? The church is the household of God. And so if you can't lead your own flesh and blood household, what makes you think you could lead the household of God? So Paul's looking for elders and overseers who are godly in their closest relationships, but also in their public relationships. So verses in 7 and 8. And what you can see here, uh, if you look, you'll see there are five negatives and there are six positives. And they all amount to the same thing. It's there in verse 8, self-control. Is this bloke someone in control of himself? Is he in control of his pride? Verse 7, not arrogant or quick-tempered, but gentle and ready to listen. Is he in control of his temper? You know, so when that howler email pings into his inbox, He'll be patient and not snap and fire off an exocet back. Is he in control when it comes to drink? Because that might be a natural response to the pressures of ministry. Is he in control of his power? Very easy to throw your weight around, to be violent, if not physically, well then emotionally, bullying and manipulating. Is he in control of his greed? Not just out for himself, but generous. All those negative things are things that ruin relationships, aren't they? Whereas the positives here build relationships. So verse 8, hospitable. Hospitality has been defined as the art of making someone feel at home when that is exactly where you wish they were. hospitable, a lover of good. You know, that is thrilled whenever and wherever you see, in whomever you see the difference that Jesus makes. Upright in his dealings, a man who says what he means, means what he says. Just like God. It's godliness and holy. Someone clearly set apart, distinctive for the Lord Jesus, disciplined again about self-control. Now, this is a hugely challenging list, isn't it? I find it hugely challenging, not least because it turns, the passage turns on me as a church leader. And I know my heart. I know how it harbors dark thoughts and misdirected desires. I know how those things often overflow in my actions and my words. I know how I let down my wife and my family again and again. I know how often I lack self-control. Uh, I know just how messed up and muddled I am, how much I need the transforming uh, truth of Jesus to be at work in me. And when I face all that, well, I can only cling to what John Newton said. I know only two things, that I am a great uh, sinner, but that Christ is a great saviour. Praise God for that. But here's the thing. None of the things that Paul lists is anything other than simply godliness produced by the gospel at work in someone, leader or not. Paul's saying that the leader is simply to be an example. We'll come back to that this afternoon. Someone who walks the talk. Someone who has themselves been transformed by the truth. Vijay Menon is a converted Hindu. He worked as a shipping engineer for Lloyd's of London, and one day he wandered into a lunchtime service by mistake, but he couldn't get out because of the numbers, and as a result was converted. Vijay says this, that when men are looking for better methods, think of that grid for curates. When men are looking for better methods, God is looking for better men. So that's the first thing that Titus is to look for. 
character shaped and defined by the truth of the gospel. And notice it's only after Paul has written about character that he gets to the second thing, verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Remember, it's the truth that leads to godliness. So the second thing Titus is to look for is not only someone who will live the, the truth, but who also hold to that truth, literally cling to it. So the second thing next to character is conviction. The leader's got to have a good grip on himself, but he's also going to have a good grip on the message. Well, how do you do that? Well, the answer is by living it and being transformed by it, as we've already seen. Conviction is to be seen first and foremost worked out in character so that the truth grips a person as much as they hold and cling on to the truth. And that's what makes it infectious. That's what makes it contagious. Conviction isn't simply for its own sake, just, you know, to believe the right things, tick the right boxes, earn your soundness badge. No, he's to hold on to the truth so he can teach that truth and pass it on. So here, here's the only and single task that is mentioned. In contrast to an expansive and searching list about character, allied to conviction, there's just one competency, teaching the trustworthy word. Why? Because it's the truth of the grace of Jesus that transforms lives. So actually, we, we've got three ingredients, haven't we? Three crucial facets of a grace-shaped, grace-filled, grace-gripped leader. And they are character, conviction, and competency. But the overwhelming emphasis is on character. Now, what happens if that emphasis gets squeezed out of shape? What happens when conviction or competency become more highly valued? What happens if conviction predominates? Or what, what happens if competency is the thing we most look for, is most highly prized? Okay, time for you to do some work. We've got those three things. Character, conviction, competency. I want you to turn to your neighbor and uh, think about what a ministry might look like if something other than character predominates. What, what would it look like if we value competency most? What would the, the church look like? What would the, the, um, uh, the, the vicar be like? Or, or what about if conviction was the thing that was most prized? Okay. So just take two or three minutes, turn to your neighbor, and uh, it may be that you've experienced that sort of thing either in a church, not here, obviously. Everyone clear about what the question is? What you're meant to be talking about? Okay, uh, just shout out um, uh, some ideas. of what, what would a, a ministry look like? What would the vicar be like if uh, they valued conviction but not character? Or a congregation valued conviction but not character? What, what would it look and feel like? How would you describe the church? Un okay. Hmm? Not authentic, inauthentic. And the sense of hammering, because it's about the conviction, yes, yeah, same thing. Okay, so there might be an element of inauthenticity, hypocrisy, yeah. 
So zealous, but quite harsh. Okay, how, how, if you were uh, keen to be seen as a, you know, as a keen member of the congregation, um, you know, how would you, how would you get on in, in, you know, church circles, if that were the case? I, ideally, yes, but if, 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 if you, it was all about the convictions. Hmm? Competitive God. Competitive God. Well, or certainly competitive knowledge, wouldn't it? You know, I, 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 I know my Bible verse by verse, and, and I've got my uh, uh, institutes, um, you know, completely memorized. Those sorts of things. Yeah, okay. What about competency? If we value competency most, not character, what sort of what would the what would the church look like and feel like? What would the vicar be like? So you'd have a sort of um, a very slick presentation on a Sunday. Um, yeah, I listen. I know what I'm doing, and I, demonstrably, <laughs> yeah. The vicar could have all the bells and whistles and rushing, but be very proud about it. Okay, so there'd be an element of show about the whole thing. Yeah. Task and performance, yeah. No room for confession of sin. Hmm? Sorry, sir. No room for confession of sin. Okay, yeah, that'd be telling, wouldn't it? It's, yes. It wouldn't be like a church. It wouldn't be like a church. No, it'd be much more like a performance, I think. And you, you'd, um, you'd end up with a, your, um, probably whatever the world thinks is... Of a of a charismatic godly, uh, a charismatic successful um, leader, they um, that would be the sort of vicar you were after. Um, okay, let's just try and pull. I think uh, if we appreciate conviction but not character, I guess what will matter most is whether we are sound or not. And we'll probably have our particular doctrinal shibboleths, you know, the test truths that declare whether someone is in or out. And I guess, as we've already said, there'll be a complementary danger that will become arrogant because only we've got the truth. And that will be with a dismissiveness and an unwillingness to listen to others outside our zealously guarded fence. And if, if we value competency rather than character. Well, then I guess what will matter most is our performance, the, you know, the brilliance of our oratory, the persuasiveness of our eloquence. You know, those who have the gift of the gab or those who have a way with words will be the ones who get lauded and platformed and, and will seek out and promote the charismatic and the charming. We'll look for the alpha male, the smart, the strong, the gifted, the beautiful, and we'll uh, appreciate and reward apparent success without asking what success looks like through a gospel lens. And I think we'll tend to the pragmatic then over the principled, because clearly it works. Ends will justify means, and there lies a very ugly space in which abuse thrives. And then conviction and competency without character, well, that's perhaps the perfect storm, isn't it? It'll be a good sound show, well presented, well thought of, ticking all the boxes, successful, but in reality, not church, in reality, a whitewashed sepulchre.
people I have known who are most confident, A, by it with character, uh, and B, don't make a song and dance about being confident. It's just there, and it serves everything else. Um, they don't need to prove anything. <laughs> but in the end, what you're saying, Alistair, is that character predominates and and the character then constrains and controls how the competencies and the convictions yeah absolutely I think you're bang on thank you a congregation's got many expectations of those who lead uh, to be a counselor an administrator a car park attendant a social worker, a community leader, a visitor to the lonely, a cultural commentator, a committee chairman, uh, an officiator for rites of passage. But none of those tasks has any value unless they themselves have been gripped by the truth that they teach and have been transformed by it. As the article I read puts it, leaders who self-consciously and visibly Body the message they proclaim. That's how the infection takes hold. That's how the contagion spreads. But, sadly, we know that not all those who lead the Church of God have either a firm grip on the truth or a firm grip on themselves. Uh, I mentioned, I'd, I'd come back to the um, uh, sailing um, as a family, because we live by the sea, we used to have uh, a little Foy River dinghy to sail and race and potter about the harbour. Uh, Foy rivers are 13-foot clinker-built wooden boats. Uh, they're gunter-rigged, they've got colourful sails. So if you think of swallows and Amazons, you'll have got it spot on. They're very sturdy and generally very simple and safe craft to sail. They're ideal for a family. However, there is one drawback, and it's this. In a stiff breeze, with the boat heeled over, if you tip too far and allow water in over the gunwale, over the side of the boat, then very quickly, in fact almost immediately, the boat will fill with water, and that is game over. Um, it happened to Joss and me about half a mile outside the harbour as we were racing. We uh, 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 were rounding a mark. Something got caught. The boat tipped. And we only just avoided capsizing. The water was wallowing around in, in the, the, the base of the hull. And it made the whole thing very precariously unstable. And we had to bail like stink and get towed back in. Earlier this year, there were pictures of one Foy River literally nose-diving into a swell and imitating a submarine as it began to submerge. Um, I once uh, did a, a prayer for a, a boat launching, um, and the uh, son took his then-girlfriend, now wife, uh, out to sail her. Uh, and um, it was quite a breezy day. There were gusts coming down the harbour, and... Uh, I don't think he was fully concentrating on the sailing. <laughs> and he, he uh, had the main sheet cleated. He forgot to release it. Uh, gunnels under, game over. Next morning, um, his dad came to church to say he wanted his money back. I said, we prayed, you know, we, not that we charged anything, but he said, you know, you were meant to be blessing the boat. I said, it's not my fault if your son doesn't know the difference between a blessing and a baptism. <laughs> anyway, the point is that you're in trouble if you allow the sea into the boat. You're in trouble if you allow the sea into your boat. And the same is true of the church and the world. The place for the church is in the world, as a boat is in the sea. But if the world gets into the church, you're in trouble. If the world gets into the church, you're in trouble. And there's something like that, which is the danger for these fledgling new churches in Crete, as Paul writes to Titus. 
Why is it that teachers who teach, teach the truth of Jesus live the truth of Jesus so, so vital to these fledgling churches? Well, because there are others out there who are peddling a different message that is both deceptive and defective. A message that not only denies Jesus, but doesn't also therefore change lives. So look at verse 10. Notice the link. The reason to appoint truth-living, truth-teaching leaders for, because, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers especially those of the circumcision party, they must be silenced. So as we looked at two things about uh, leaders who will uh, walk the talk, let's notice uh, two things about this identical description that we then get of these dangerous alternative teachers. First thing to note is that a worldly gospel is actually no gospel at all. A worldly gospel is actually no gospel at all. Because Paul paints a very sad picture here of a church that is indistinguishable from the society around it. The kind of religion that these alternative teachers were modeling in Crete was cut from the same cloth as Cretan society. So Paul quotes uh, from a well-known and respected Cretan poet called Epimenides of Knossos. Obviously, you're very familiar with his work. Uh, Epimenides was writing about 600 years before, and people like Plato and Aristotle and later Cicero regarded him as in a sort of inspired prophetic type. Um, and he said, verse 12, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. One commentator paraphrases it poetically. Liars ever, men of Crete, nasty brutes who live to eat. Gets it, doesn't it? So Paul quotes Epimenides, a Cretan, one of their own, and he says, it's true. It's true. Verse 13, this testimony is true. That's what they're like. That's the culture on the island. And of course, it's not so very different from 21st century Britain, is it? In, in Cretan society, truth was cheap. If it was convenient or profitable to bend the truth or to exaggerate the truth or be economical with the truth, well, why not? They're always liars. They didn't say what they mean or mean what they say. You couldn't trust them. Notice, unlike God, verse 2, who never lies. So, truth is cheap. And in Cretan society, uh, it was brutal. Life was cheap. Epimenides apparently went on to say that the absence of wild beasts on the island was made up for by the inhabitants. Uh, we might describe them as feral. It was the survival of the fittest. Everyone for him or herself. Evil brutes. The very opposite 3 verse 4 of the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior. Truth was cheap. Life was cheap. And the culture of Crete was hedonistic to the core. Lazy gluttons. Living simply for greedy pleasure. Living simply for the moment. Simply for oneself. Utterly selfish. Again, unlike the Lord Jesus Christ. 2.14 who gave himself for us to redeem us. It's very contemporary, isn't it? Think of the multiple ways, both in mainstream media and through social media, in which truth is selectively portrayed to manipulate us. Think about how fact-checking has had to become a thing. Truth is cheap in our society, too. And then think of the, the hatred and venom and animosity that is spewed out as people tear into one another, the vitriol and the poison of council culture that has little regard for the innate dignity and worth of individuals. Life is cheap in our society. And then think of those posts that are claiming to live my best life to pursue your dreams, to do any of those things which make you happy. Our society is hedonist to the core. 
And just as the gospel challenged Cretan society, so it challenges ours. But the danger was that Cretan culture was changing the gospel. And that danger remains too. As we saw last night, the heart of this letter to Titus, Paul's assertion, is that God has revealed himself. That he's made himself known. He talks about, one verse, uh, in 1 2, uh, the hope of eternal life which God, verse 3, has manifested in his word. 2.11, the grace of God has appeared. 3.4, uh, four, the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. God's not hiding. Openly and clearly for all to see, he's made himself known in Jesus. And this revelation of God <clears throat> can be heard and encountered in the message that Jesus entrusted to the apostles, which is why it's the trustworthy word as taught, verse 9. But those Paul describes, the, the, the people he's, uh, he's warning Titus about are those, verse 14, look at it, who've turned away from the truth. And verse 10, as insubordinate, same word as verse 6, like unruly children, they think they know best and so they've spurned and rebuffed what God has revealed because they're unwilling to come under the authority of the word of God. They want to do their own thing. And what they do do, verse 11, is for their own shameful gain. So, they may be good communicators. They may be eloquent preachers. But their message is empty. They are, verse 10, empty talkers. There's nothing there. The lights may be on, but there's no one at home. What they say may be fascinating and entertaining, but it doesn't change lives. It's empty, vacuous, lifeless, and powerless. There's no gospel at all, no transforming truth. And therefore, verse 10, they are deceivers. They make people think that they're following the Lord Jesus when actually they're not. It's all very Cretan. Deceit, lies, selfishness. It's indistinguishable from the world. And the point is that a worldly gospel is no gospel at all. And I want to suggest that whilst truth leads to godliness, the opposite and reverse is also true. The desire for ungodliness will lead to a turning away from the truth. The, the author Aldous Huxley uh, made an unusually candid admission. He was in the process of moving from agnosticism to sort of various forms of Eastern mysticism. And he said this, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning and consequently assumed that it had none. For myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was an, essentially an instrument for liberation, political and sexual. So if there was no truth, you see, no revelation, that meant that Huxley could do what he wanted. And so he walked away from any absolute truth. It was his behavior that determined his belief. Now, you can see obvious parallels in the church, in parts of it at any rate. The arguments over same-sex blessings have been driven by a desire to reflect our society. For instance, the sea is in the boat. And no wonder many onlookers are then asking, what's the point of church that's no different from the world? We had a, a retired minister uh, as part of our congregation for several years who was full of witticisms. He'd been a school chaplain, and um, they used to call him trucker because he just kept on going. Uh, but he used to remind us, the church is not called to be a thermometer, but to be a thermostat. Not called to be a thermometer, just to register whatever the temperature is of the world around but to be a thermostat, to set the temperature of the world around. Ungodliness leads to a turning away from the truth. A worldly gospel is really no gospel at all. And then second, a worldly gospel is miserable. 
Do you see that? A worldly gospel is miserable. There are a number of clues as to what these alternative teachers were pushing in the place of the trustworthy revealed truth. Uh, So those who uh, were, verse 10, empty talkers and deceivers were especially those of the circumcision party. Better translation might be, that is those of the circumcision party. So the kind of religion that they were hot on was rules and rituals and particular activities or badges of belonging, of virtue signaling. They were very particular about their reputation for doing things in the right way. They were concerned for a ritual purity, verse 15, and rules about what was and wasn't done. In fact, more concerned about the rules and commands of people, verse 14, than the truth of God. And it would also seem that they were massively into traditions that have been built up down the years, baggage that have accumulated alongside the truth, so much so that these inventions and fantasies had displaced everything else. They, verse 14, devoting themselves to Jewish myths. Now again, it's got a very contemporary ring about it. Think of clergy who fudged the plain teaching of scripture and yet are very hot on the correct ritual and the right robes on keeping the seasons and saints' days, on observing particular monastic rules or making pilgrimages to supposed shrines, focusing on the the accumulated trappings and thinking that that is what the church is about. But it's like chipboard veneer. Um, Ikea has become one of the most recognized furniture brands all over the world, hasn't it? 300 stores, 37 countries. It's affordable, attractive, something of a cult brand. Indeed, I guess many of us will have uh, more than one Ikea item. No, we're meant to say Ikea, aren't we? Um, In our own homes. Uh, In which case, you may have learnt by experience that high-quality heirloom furniture, it is not. Uh, what we found is the, the solid wood stuff they sell is both sturdy and robust. We've got some excellent chairs and stools, but steer clear of anything that is chipboard veneer. It may look enticing, even stylish, but it won't deliver. Some years ago, we bought two desks for units for the family room. They didn't even last six months before they were falling apart. And a worldly gospel is like that. It mistakes the veneer of activity for heart-transforming truth. Do you remember Jesus' diagnosis in Mark 7? What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And no amount of outward veneer and superficial ritual purity can change it. Only the truth of Jesus can. And if your heart isn't cleansed and changed and purified by the truth, if you haven't got Jesus, well then Paul says here, nothing's pure. Everything's defiled. There is only the miserable existence of knowing enough about Jesus not to be able to enjoy the world, but not enough about Jesus to enjoy him. It's the worst of both worlds. It's miserable to get religion, but not Jesus. And the consequences are very serious. Verse 11, they're upsetting whole families. Think of Jesus uh, overturning, upsetting the table of the money changers in the temple. Same word. It's causing chaos and confusion. It's turning lives upside down. And bottom line, verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. What, What they say and what they are just don't match. John Stott puts it this way. This is ritual without reality, form without power, claims without character, faith without works. And it's a miserable existence. 
which is why Paul says, verse 11, they must be silenced, literally muzzled as you would a dog. Verse 13, rebuke them sharply. This isn't a game. And it's not just to put them down. It's actually to put them right. Verse 13, that they may be sound, literally healthy in the faith. You see, the great thing about the truth of Jesus is that it does transform and it can do that for anyone, even those who've completely missed the point, even those who've turned away from the truth. It can bring them back. The truth can, uh, can transform even Cretans, even you and me. A worldly gospel is no gospel at all. A worldly gospel's miserable. But here's the thing. We all live in the world, and Jesus calls us to be in the world as salt and light, and we cannot escape the currents and tides and waves of the sea. We're all subject to them. The danger is when the sea gets in the boat. That's when we're in trouble. And so the challenge for us is to examine our hearts, examine our minds, and see what's shaping them. Is it Jesus? Is it his transforming truth? Or is it the values of the world around us? Our aspirations, our goals, our habits, our relationships. And if it is society and culture rather than Jesus, either in general or on a specific issue, well, then we need to get bailing quick. And if we become entranced by the allure of ticking off certain activities to give us the veneer of godliness, if our spiritual life is really just a hollow mask, well, let me urge you, please, to turn to the Lord Jesus, to trust him, and to begin to discover the life-giving, health-giving beauty of his transforming truth and good, the goodness of real godliness for yourself. Let's pray. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Our Heavenly Father, as we pray for our leaders, so we pray for ourselves that the truth of the grace of Jesus would so grip us and transform us and change us and overflow in godliness and goodness for the glory of the Lord Jesus and for the sake of others. In his great name, amen. This afternoon we're going to think a little bit about um, the content of the good life, of what godliness looks like a little more.